Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl, and I'm Esther Ikoro, and we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Hi, Ginger. Hey, Esther. How's it going? You know, it's going pretty good. Weather in Chicago is giving me life. It's like sunny, warm, it's hot. You know, my kids can go outside. I'm loving it. I really needed to have the sun shining. I really did. How about you? Things are pretty okay over here. <laughs> my plants are thriving. Thanks. Uh, I went hiking, you know, spend time by the water and yeah. The other thing about, you know, what's been happening in quarantine is that I can't even do one of my favorite pastimes. I'm scared to ask what is You know one what? Of your I have pastimes. lots of them. <laughs> But the biggest thing that has really caused a lot of pain for me is grocery shopping. I cannot go grocery shopping anymore. And, you know, I know some people are doing it, but me, I'm just not going because, you know, the social distancing is an issue. I love grocery shopping. I've always loved grocery shopping. I used to go grocery shopping with my mother when I was a child and I learned about fruits and vegetables. I know the difference between a peach and a nectarine, which is something that my young child cannot do. Um, but it's really because of my, you know, journeys every week with my mother when she got paid and she was a Chicago public school teacher. We'd go to the grocery store every Friday and get all kinds of cool stuff. And we'd get I'd get cream soda and things like that. So, you know, um, I just it's something that I'm really struggling with not being able to go out with ease and confident at the grocery store. You know what I mean? Like, do you like to go shopping for groceries? I hate going shopping. I don't you know want what? to That's talk just to wrong. Listen, I got like four that things so of kitty wrong. litter delivered to my front door today. I did not even see the person who dropped off the kitty litter I ordered this morning. You know what? So I, mean, I have no clue who brought that. It was just there. And so thank you. I mean, so like, what is your hatred of going grocery shopping? I just... Um, I don't enjoy shopping in general. So the in-store experience is not something that, you know, if I could, the only reason why I buy clothes in person, for instance, it's because I have to try everything on. It's, <laughs> I want to know the fit and the form of it is very important to me. But other than that, if I could just do this at home and have it show up and I could spend my time around the people I actually want to look at, no offense, those people are very important. But, you know, some people enjoy that process. I don't enjoy the process. It sounds like you really do. So. Well, you know, clothes shopping is a whole other conversation. I mean, definitely the only kind of clothes shopping I like to do are at really expensive department stores or, you know, small independent shops where things are really expensive. And then I know that I'm getting, you know, beautiful quality, one of a kind things. Generally, I can't do other kinds of shopping. Um, but I will say this. I am looking forward to the day that I can go back to the grocery store and feel confident and not be afraid for my life. If I could have studied food science 
I would have in college. If I knew then what I know now, I would have totally been involved in some other type of career. It would not be brand strategy. Maybe it would be brand strategy for food companies. You know, um, looking um, at the environment now with the things that I'm learning about, you know, supply chain, I am so curious about decisions around how do you decide what goes on a shelf? How do you figure out what position it should be in, right? You know, what's going mm-hmm. on behind the scenes when when you're going through and stacking the shelves with like milk and, and cheese and things like that? You know, the behind the scenes for um, the produce. I mean, produce is, is like the place I spend most of my time outside of the ice cream section. Now, knowing, you know, what's happening in the world, I'm sort of like, what what is going on back there? I never cared before. I have you no know? idea. I totally, totally no idea. And I, I even remember, you know, when... Whole Foods um, first opened up in Chicago, and it was like, it was like like a miracle. It was a total transformative experience for me to walk into a store like that and just see beautiful colors and beautiful perfect fruits. And it was all organic, which at the time that's all I wanted to buy because it was a whole new thing. And you know, it just was like it was such an experience for me to. It's always been an experience for me. I mean, you know. You know, another, you know, quick story is my my second child. I mean, I think my water broke in the grocery store. That's how much shopping I do, if you can believe it. And then I went right to the hospital. I swear to God. So, but like now it's, it's just like the grocery stores seem to be in a lot of trouble. It's not a place of comfort anymore. Maybe it isn't for some people. Like you said, you hate it. Um, but, you know, the fact that you can't get stuff you want, um, you're you're worried when you go into the grocery store, things are inconsistent, things you know or you're looking at, they're like, oh, that's probably not clean, you know? And I'm like, this is this feels uncomfortable to me. And it's not, it doesn't seem to be letting up, right? And mm-hmm. I don't really know what needs to happen. I think about the big guys. We don't even need to name them, all the big grocery stores in the world. I mean, they're actually doing fine. I don't know how they're doing in terms of the customer experience, right? Um, but at the end of all of this, at the end of all of this, the independent retailer and the independent grocery store, I mean, they're the ones I think are in serious, serious trouble. And, you know, on our show, we talk all day and all night about small businesses and entrepreneurs, right? So, I mean, I just think that the scary thing is I don't know how we're ever going to get back to where we were. I know. I, I can't I in my mind. I don't think that exists anymore. And you already know how I am about germs. I, I don't sit in booths and I'm not even a germaphobe. I just know too much just having a health background. I can't unsee <laughs> some of the things I've seen. Um, but all of this makes sense to my mind, but I understand that there are a lot of people having trouble adjusting to it. I will say that there are parts of the in-store experience that I do miss. I got avocados delivered today. Not one was ready to eat and they're not going to be ready for a long time. So that makes me feel, you know, if you're not there doing it in person or someone you trust doing it in person, it's hard to get exactly what you want, depending on what's going on. So I I do miss that part. But yeah, small grocery stores right now, I feel a, a lot of mixed emotions for them because it is so easy to pick up my phone and order my groceries. Every single thing that I want is just coming directly to me. But yeah, but I you know, can't get that good avocado I know. and you cannot yeah. get a green banana. I mean, for God's sakes, how many times have I gotten bananas misdelivered to me that were not green, which is what I requested. Misdelivered. Anyway, I mean, it's, it's just a lot of crazy. You know, we have on our show today, a grocery supply chain expert, Yeah, a former executive that has worked at the world's largest, most important brand and consulting firms, right? 
And he's also one of the country's leading writers on grocery supply chain economics and policy. His name is Britton Ladd. I'm so excited. I met Britton on LinkedIn, believe it or not. And the reason that I say that because of COVID-19, it's hard to combine opportunity and COVID-19 in the same breath. But because of the, uh, you know, the lockdown and the stay-at-home policies and social distancing, I'm meeting some amazing people that I never would have met before. And Britain is one of them. Britain Ladd has 20 years of experience working for such companies as Dell, Capgemini, Deloitte, and Amazon. After leaving Amazon in 2017, he put his entrepreneurial instincts to good use and opened his own consulting practice focused on strategy, innovation, supply chain management, and logistics. Britain serves clients globally. Britain was asked by Forbes and other publications to contribute articles related to retail and other topics. He is considered a thought leader in retail. Britain continues to write articles and utilizes LinkedIn to post his comments on retail. He is a leading influencer on LinkedIn. Britain also served in the U.S. Marine Corps for six years. He has earned three master's degrees and remains a lifelong learner. Welcome, Britain. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's so nice to be here. So that word supply chain is something that is at the forefront of everyone's mind, especially because we're all watching them break in different ways at different companies. But what is supply chain for someone who has heard the word but has no idea what everyone's talking about? So the shirt you're wearing is a supply chain because, <laughs> because what happens is you have to grow the cotton for that T-shirt. So that means the farmer has to plow, they have to plant, they have to grow, they have to harvest. Then that harvested cotton has to go to a mill where it's turned into thread, turned into fiber, and basically then it goes to a manufacturer and the manufacturer manufactures your shirt. Then the shirt has to travel from there to the retailer or there to multiple retailers. So that's trucks, it's manufacturing, it's, it's facilities for warehousing, it's inventory, it's marketing, and that all is interconnected. So the reason why the term supply chain was invented was to really explain to everyone that if at any point in that journey I just described, there's a disruption. All of the links in the chain, no matter where you pull the chain, all of the links follow. So let's say the farmer wasn't able to grow. The season was cut short because of bad weather. Well, there's a built-up demand for those T-shirts, but there's no cotton to make them. So now the supply chain is disrupted. And as we saw during COVID-19, what was one of the biggest disruptions? Toilet paper. Because the toilet paper supply chain was, well, people go to work. So we supply industrial toilet paper to companies and they use the bathroom facilities there. COVID-19 didn't make people go to the bathroom more, but it forced them to use their bathrooms more. So now people were buying toilet paper for their bathrooms, but the supply chain wasn't designed to have that much demand. And that's why the shelves were empty. And that's why to this day, the toilet paper companies still don't have an ability to manufacture enough toilet paper because there's not enough manufacturing plants. The capacity has been disrupted, and therefore, there's a shortage, and there will continue to be a shortage. Everything is connected. Mm-hmm. 
this is really fascinating. It's to me, and I've mentioned this to you, Ginger, as well. It's it's like all of the things that we learned about in theory at school are happening before our eyes, where we can't argue the theory of well, things will be okay anymore. It's just like here's what's going on, and here's the answer because we're living it in real life. And speaking of capacity, some big box stores were really prepared for this boom in e-commerce. Like Williams-Sonoma, for instance, saw their numbers go through the roof. Some were just already prepared and had invested a lot into it. Are you seeing anything being done by these companies to ramp up their e-commerce that isn't sustainable? Are some just completely on the wrong path, but it's kind of working now because we've experienced this surge in demand? What What do you think about those new practices? If If you had the ability to sell groceries and deliver groceries, no matter how poor of a store you were or are, your business went up anywhere from 100 to 400%. That's how fast, that's how much demand there was for grocery. So anyone who can sell groceries and deliver groceries is doing well. The problem is it's not sustainable. And the reason why it's not sustainable is that when the stores reopen, and they will, you're going to find people trickle back in because of something that Jen just said earlier. Jen just said, you may be able to order your groceries, Esther, but you can't get the best avocado. And so there's a behavior that people have that I, I, I did a massive research project in 2013, and I was the first person to recommend Amazon to acquire Whole Foods. And it's on my LinkedIn profile. It's called A Beautiful Way to Save Woolworths. And I applied game theory to the global grocery industry. I examined Amazon and I said, you might be big and bad at online, but you cannot give people the experience of inspecting and selecting fresh fruits and vegetables. And I knew that was their weakness. So I said, Amazon should acquire Whole Foods. So that inspect and select behavior is alive and well in you, Esther. Um, it's alive and well in you, Ginger, and it's alive and well for the office members. People, when it comes to fresh food, they like to thump the watermelon. They like to smell certain things. Grocery retailers still cannot send you the right bananas. They don't send you the milk that's not going to expire for two weeks. Instead, for some reason, they send you the milk that expires tomorrow. You lose the ability to inspect and select. And that's why you're going to see all these massive numbers of online grocery sales start to come down as customers find their way back into the store. Overall, 70% of Americans prefer to shop in a store than order their groceries online. There is truly a relationship that people have with stores. Are there going to be improved uh, food safety standards? Is it happening right now? This is the ISO space. This isn't the FDA inspection world I'm asking about. I'm asking about those those real hardcore official standards that that big time people have to abide by. Well, you know, it's interesting. They actually passed the Food Safety Modernization Act, FISMA. And when I worked at Deloitte, I actually worked with the Food and Drug Administration and other government agencies to write that to write that bill. And that was supposed to, like, take everything to the next level. The challenge is there are over 38,500 grocery stores in the United States. So the Kroger's, the Albertsons, the Ajo Del Hayes, the Walmarts, they have a really robust capability. 
of protecting the customer, making sure they're getting the best quality food and so forth. Where the breakdown occurs is at the state level for more smaller cities, store cities that have more independent retailers, because they're the ones that, because they're small and independent, they don't generate as much attention as the big box grocery retailers do. So although I'd like to say, oh, absolutely, you can go to any grocery store and you can rest assured that that food is safe and healthy, there it's really not still possible to do. And also, there's not a technology. Most companies in, say, Europe, most, most grocery retailers, they put RFID tags or they have other tech. Also, radio frequency identification, it's a little tag that goes on the meat. They can even put it on individual vegetables. And from the time that leaves a, a processing station, a farm, it's tracked all the way till it gets to the retailer. And it's also tracked for how long it sits there. So if something goes past its expiration date, the RFID tag actually tracks it. And then government agencies download that data and they can easily determine, well, who's breaking the law and who isn't. We don't have that in the United States. So there's still a lot of work that has to do. The good news is when it comes to independent grocery retailers, the majority of them truly take what they do serious. They honestly look at it and say, we have a, 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 a duty to provide our customers with the best fruits and vegetables, the safest meat and so forth. So is it a problem? Yes. Is it a massive problem? No. Of not having safe vegetables, the freshest fruits and meats and so forth in these stores. It's really a smaller problem than probably people realize. Is it still dangerous? Yes. We still have outbreaks of salmonella and listeria and things like that. Um, that's just because we do not have a, a law in the United States that says all fresh food has to go through a radiation first. We don't do that. It sounds like you're describing the death of independent retail. I'm going to take it to a bigger thing, retail, not just grocers, but you're, you're describing the, the end of independent retailers. What in the world can they do? What can they do to, 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 to make it and survive and protect themselves? I mean, I'm not talking the next year because I have a colleague in Chicago, for example, who just implemented Shopify POS for the first time. I mean, her whole entire retail operation went down, underground, ended. And, and But she's very innovative. She's passionate. She's like, you know what? I'm not going to let this kill me. I'm going to do this. And so now she has this new platform. So everything in her store now is available online. I mean, is, there, is that going to work? Or are you saying that's not even enough? Well, unfortunately, remember what I said earlier about supply chains enabling growth? Well, that's what Amazon's doing and Walmart and all these other big box retailers. They understand that the more fulfillment centers they open, the more stores they open, the more customers will look at what they're doing and say, I get a better deal there. The independents will never be able to beat Amazon on price or other retailers on price. They won't be able to beat them on convenience because you can order anything you want on Amazon and Target and Walmart and it can be delivered. And then there's simply the factor that Amazon and other retailers are really beginning to bundle a lot of things they offer you. So you're a Prime member. Well, now you can get Prime Video. You can get Hulu for free. You now can get your groceries delivered. Amazon's building appliances that have Alexa incorporated. So you can say, Alexa, start the oven. Alexa, turn off the oven. Alexa, do I need milk? 
So now imagine you're a motivated, highly skilled and capable individual who has their own store. Across from you or within six blocks of you is a Target. Now maybe there's an Amazon-branded grocery store. Now you have an online website. Okay, well, Google is creating algorithms that very quickly are doing price matching for Amazon and other retailers. So you do a first product search as a customer. And Ann's Ann's little corner boutique pops up, but they're ranked number 10 in price on what you want to buy. Amazon or Target or Walmart are ranked one, two, and three. Where are you going to shop? So unfortunately, the only way smaller retailers survive is if they create a niche market, a niche capability, the butcher shop who can take any cut of meat and serve it to you and who has lamb and beef and poultry and all these crazy things. So you don't have that capability in a Walmart and Amazon and so forth. So that butcher shop is always going to have customers because he or she has this niche market, this niche capability. So if you're a retailer, a small retailer that says, I do arts and crafts in my store, you can make what you want, but then I have this great global marketplace where I can order you pieces from all over the world. We carry more products on our marketplace than Amazon and Walmart and Target combined. That's a differentiating capability. But if you're just a neighborhood grocery retailer, well, as long as there's not an Amazon Go market, within several blocks of you or any number of other smaller format stores that these grocery retailers are actually opening in downtown locations and other cities, well, you'll be fine. But once they start to appear around you, they start to peel away customers from you because customers know they can get a better price. So there's going to be an awful lot of independent grocery stores that go out of business, restaurants that go out of business, because You have to be able to compete. You have to be able to compete on price, quality, and convenience. You have to have a supply chain and technology that allows you to do that. You're not going to have any of those capabilities if you're a small independent retailer. Let me ask you about the rural community, right? So I know in Chicago, which is, you know, where my office is based, and, um, you know, we have so many resources here. Everything we want at our fingertips, whether you deliver it, you go down the street, I mean, everything's here. Is this, does this conversation apply to the rural community as well? And, and people that are far off the sort of the main grid of, of urban city living, is this, the same, is this the same conversation? Yes. And the reason why is you won't have to be concerned about that today if you're in the area where you're at. But within 10 years, if Amazon wants to, to sell groceries to 90% of the population, that means they have to go in the rural areas where you are. They have to go to rural areas where other, other uh, rural areas are located. So there's going to be a massive change in stores. So Walmart, Kroger, Amazon, they're building different formats. Amazon Go Market, 10,000 square feet, about 7,000 products. Amazon is opening their own supermarket with their name. They're opening up multi-format stores that have grocery and retail and other things. They're going to open up thousands of those. Where do you think they're going to put them? In all of the other locations in rural areas and in certainly urban locations where other stores are located. And when they show up in your neighborhood, who do you think the customer is going to go to? It will be those bigger branded stores because they will do a great job of marketing to all those customers. Hey, 
why don't you start shopping at our Amazon Go market? And if you do, we'll give you a 15% discount just because you're a Prime member. We'll give you six months of streaming video for free. So what happens is they entice the customer with all these things that the independents can't offer. And no matter how loyal those customers are, little by little, they're peeled away because they have to think of saving money and they want choice. They want better price. They want better quality. And so they always seem to migrate from these smaller retailers that sell the same thing that the other stores do. But what they do remain brand loyal to are those niche retailers that offer something that the big box retailers can't. So is there life for small retailers? Sure, but they better be wise in what they're offering to the customer. And the thing they want to be able to do is have a differentiating capability. I'm a butcher. I cut all my meat by hand. I make all my sausage by hand, and I can serve you any type of meat you want. That's what gives me a differentiating capability from Walmart, Target, and everyone else. So when we think about services like Instacart or Mercado, I know that some of those services have begun to acquire smaller independent grocers and retailers. What is the acquisition environment looking like for these tech-enabled companies? Is there a way for independent grocers and even other types of retail businesses to band together on their own to do this? Or are they all destined to be ultimately gobbled up by these you know, other tech-enabled companies? Two years ago, I wrote an article. And the, uh, the article title was, Is Instacart a Trojan Horse? And I made the argument that what Instacart was doing was intentionally lowering their prices so that they could start serving Kroger and Walmart and Albertsons and all kinds of large grocery retailers, but they also went after a lot of independents. And what they did was they were learning how these companies operate, how they price, how they operate, where they order their products from, everything. And behind the scenes, what I knew was going on was that Instacart was raising capital. Instacart is now worth $14 billion. They control over 50% of the online grocery market. So how did they get there? Because they learned how these grocers operate. And they took all those lessons to heart and they put it to use. The next stage of Instacart, and Instacart always denies they're going to do this, but I believe Instacart's going to open up their own stores. They're going to be a distributor of their own private label product. So what happens is Instacart will become a large grocery retailer themselves. The problem with the independents is when Amazon acquired Whole Foods, they had themselves convinced that Amazon was going to kill them. Even Walmart and Kroger and other companies thought, oh my God, Amazon acquired Whole Foods, we're dead. And I was writing articles saying, I'm the guy who recommended it. And I'm telling you, it'll be 2025 before Amazon really is going to be a threat in a big way to any grocery retailers. Don't panic. But they panicked. They went after Instacart. So the only way independents really can start to survive, they have to cut the cord on Instacart. And they need to start doing business with a company like Mercatus or Shop Hero, who offer these platforms that do exactly what Instacart does, but the independent retailer maintains the relationship with the customer. The service is branded as their store. They keep all of the data, and it's a way for them to really do something special. They remain that independent entity that, the, that their customers can depend on. The minute an independent retailer does business with Instacart, Instacart becomes the brand name. 
not the retailer. And so if that retailer ends the business with Instacart, Instacart has all of their customer data. And all Instacart does is send emails to those customers saying, well, I understand you're no longer doing business with Britain. We like Britain. He had 10 really nice stores, but there's Judy and Judy has better stores. And if you sign up with Judy, we'll give you a 20% discount on all of your orders for the next three months. So what happens? Everybody signs back up to Instacart. It's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious circle. So the only way that retailers can regain their independence, they have to cut the cord with Instacart and they have to go with another platform. And they have to basically make investments to where they're going to pick their own groceries, use independent re, um, you know, uh, gig workers to make the deliveries. But it needs to be that you're working for Britain. When you arrive, it should say Britain. It should be, you know, Britain is the one serving you, not Instacart. Independent retailers made a really bad choice. I love that because Mercado is the platform that I love because it does give me the relationship and conversation with the actual retailer. I mean, the uh, in March, I switched to Mercado because that was when Amazon completely broke down in Chicago and things were not shipping. Whole Foods wasn't delivering. And that's how I accidentally got served an ad on Instagram. Instagram. And then I, I said, what is this? What is this thing? And I, and I started using them. And I, re- I will never forget the conversation I had with the very first store that I ordered from. And he was almost in tears because he couldn't get everything I asked for. And it made me feel so bad. And it, it, it made me feel bad at, at one level because, um, you know, he humanized the experience for me because I was doing this. I'm doing this very um, sterile, unconnected, I'll never get a human on a phone thing that I've developed with Amazon and other, other retailers like that. But here was a man on the phone telling me, I did find this product for you. I can't find this one. I got most of your items and I'm doing the best I can. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I forgot about that. You know, I haven't had that kind of experience (laughs) delivering before. I mean, when I walk into a store. So I do agree with you. um, You know, if there are services like Esther said, where some independent stores like that can, can pull together and have that kind of experience, maybe that's a way for an independent retailer to be able to compete. am so confused by micro fulfillment. Um, Is this something that can apply to smaller retailers or is this this giant concept that only large brands like Amazon and Walmart can can be a part of, right? You, if you're an independent retailer, if you have, say, 20 stores, micro fulfillment can work for you. But to have a micro fulfillment installed in just one store that's picking about 90% of the orders automatically. It's about $6 million to do that. So that's an awful lot of money. So someone like Amazon and Walmart and Kroger and others can say, well, we'll put 100 of these across certain stores. And then we'll put 50 offsite in actual standalone micro-fulfillment centers. Micro-fulfillment centers, nothing more than technology. It's a cubed-based system where robots, actually go back and forth over the top of these cubes and the inventory for groceries are kept in these bins. So when an order is placed, the robots start moving the bins all around to find what they need. They pick it, 
put it in one bin, then they drop that bin and they move another bin around. So they pick ketchup out of one, mustard out of another, loaf of bread out of another, but it's all done with robots and they can do this in seconds. They literally can move super fast. So there's no way that, like, again, I'm looking back to what Esther asked earlier, um, a collection or a collective of independent stores that could be part of that scenario. Well, so here's the trouble with that. And I agree with you. I've written articles on this, trying to help the independents. And I say, when was the last time you went and shook the hand of your biggest competitor? And they're like, well, I would never do that. They're a competitor. And I said, then how in the world do you ever think you can collaborate on the things where you can reduce each other's costs? And that's supply chain and logistics. It's fulfillment. So if independent grocery retailers would almost consider themselves to be members of the mafia and say, we're going to meet and we're going to sign a peace treaty. We're going to have a truce. We're going to work together. We're going to let everybody have their own area. They're going to carve out, but we're not going to shoot each other. We're going to work together. And what happens is they actually are at war with each other. They raise and lower prices and they offer services. So independent retailers don't work well together. But if I could get 15 or 20 or 30 or 100 or whatever to say, we are willing to collaborate on procurement. Imagine if I had 50 independent retailers said, you take our combined spend of groceries, of what each of us has to pay to buy our groceries. And I say, give me all that spend, and I create a company, Britain's Procurement, and I go buy all your groceries. Well, maybe as Britain Independent Retailer, I may have $200,000, a million dollars a year that I'm spending on groceries. If I have 50 independent retailers, well, I can go to a wholesaler, a distributor, and say, I've got $50 million, and I want to negotiate a reduction in price for all these large volumes I'm going to buy. I may be able to reduce the cost of those independent retailers by 25 or 30% or more. So now I'm saving them money because they're willing to collaborate on procurement. But then I say, oh, by the way, for all online orders, let's go together and buy 10 micro-fulfillment centers. We'll install these robotics in off-site locations. And whenever you get an online grocery order, we'll fulfill the order from there. Each of you will pay a transaction fee for every time an order is fulfilled, and we'll negotiate with the, the robotics company that we pay for this over five years. Well, now the independent grocery retailer doesn't have labor in their stores doing the fulfillment. They've collaborated on reducing cost of procurement. So now what happens is those independent retailers are actually price competitive with the largest retailers out there. They absolutely have to be willing to collaborate. And I've always used a phrase, collaboration accelerates innovation. And that's what needs to happen today. So none of us have big logistics bills and we'll just lease space and we'll put our products on each other's trucks. And we'll make sure that when I deliver products to my Macy's store, that truck goes and makes deliveries to your Kohl's store. If those retailers would have started doing that years ago, five and 10 years ago, when I was actually making the recommendation to do so, Amazon wouldn't be as big and successful as they are. Neither would Walmart because they'd have been able to really reduce each other's cost. And because of that, they could invest in better technology, a better store experience, a better e-commerce experience. But look at how people limit themselves. I can't talk to you, Ginger. You look different than me. I can't talk to Macy's because I'm JCPenney. Do you think I'm going to do anything to help them? No, you shouldn't look at it that way. You should look at it as, you should look at it as, 
You have a monster competitor out there on Amazon. So you're fighting against them. Can small floral shops, there's so many of them across the country, right? Can this sort of collective experience apply to a florist? Um, um, So in my neighborhood, we have four small women-owned flower shops, right? And they are competitors of each other. They are struggling, and most of them are not at all prepared for online sales, except for one that I just told you. She just implemented Shopify POS, and now she is 100% able to sell online. Can, can, can independent flower retailers do what you're describing? Can they get together and, and somehow find a way to, you know, I don't know, have what you described, buying flowers from, from one person? And I mean, what, is, what does that look like for people like that? Because I'm thinking about flower shops. I'm thinking about um, the tiny little um, bookstore that's in the neighborhood. I'm thinking of even the liquor store. So like the liquor stores in Chicago, there's an app called Drizzly. And Drizzly, yes. like Mercado, does this. They have a truck um, that says Drizzly, but um, they also, um, when they deliver people come up, they have the branding from the store that you ordered. And so that's that's at least what it's like in Chicago. I can't say that it's like that all over the country. Um, I love I love that experience. I'm, I'm just trying to understand like these these little liquor stores, these flower shops. I just there has to be something in addition to that massive you know, mindset change you just described to help these people live their dreams and, and run their businesses for a longer amount of time. I, I get the, I get the content piece. I, I get the differentiation piece. You know, some people written, they don't think that way. Don't, they don't think like marketers, you know, they just have a store, they're running a business, right? They're, they're not as high level thinking around like full omni-channel ecosystem experiences to ensure that every touch point is unique and valuable and beautiful and, and, and breathtaking, right? And bringing passion. Like they just, everyone doesn't think that way. And a lot of people don't open a business with that in mind. They just have a dream and they're like, this is something I love doing. Let me do it. Jane's a woman. She's a woman-owned business. She has her own flower store. But Jane's pretty sharp because she now has e-commerce capability through Shopify. What she honestly could do is go to those four, those other three florists and say, here's what I'm willing to do. I will brand a web front for you, Mary, Kathy, and Jill. I don't know their names, but you said they're women. So they're women. So I just named them. So Jill has a Jill's flower shop through this woman who has the Shopify capability. All right. So when an online order comes, it actually goes through this woman's website. And she says, I'm going to charge you a small transaction fee for you to have this e-commerce capability. It covers all my costs and I have a small margin. But what it prevents is you having to go do what I did. It saves you money from having to go get this e-commerce capability. But I need something in return. I want all four of us, when we buy flowers, we pool our money and we buy from a flower distributor, but we do it as one group, not as individuals. And what happens is now instead of buying, say, 20 dozen roses, maybe the four of them buy 200. Well, if I'm a flower distributor and you're buying 200 roses from me, 200 dozen, I may reduce my price a dollar a dozen. Maybe before you were only saving 50 cents. Maybe you were saving nothing because you weren't buying enough volume from me. 
So you following what I'm saying? So that's what these individuals can do. It takes one leader, the lady who has the, 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 the Shopify, she absolutely could sit back and say, wow, I actually have a new business opportunity. Because those stores probably buy paper towels and cleaning supplies and other stuff. They probably buy the plastic wrap and all that. So why are they buying it independently? Just collaborate, just pool all of that and then go to these companies to sell it and you buy bigger volumes. And it may sound simplistic what I described, but I know it works because I've seen it work in Africa. I used to work in Africa where I did micro loans. And so I would help these small businesses. Sometimes all I had to give them was like $10. But it was a woman who was doing something and she had like three or four other women, but they needed some piece of equipment. They needed a pump or whatever. And they're like, well, if we have this pump, then we can pump water and then we can deliver water to these villages. And we'll charge a certain amount to do that. And we'll take the empty bottles and we bring them back and we fill them up and we do it again. It's a real tiny business, but it grew and it continues to grow. So it's applying what I learned there to the United States using that example. All you have to be willing to do is say, how do we look at our businesses different? We can still compete. We still have to deliver. We still have to give great customer experience, but let's not cost ourselves money where we put ourselves out of business. Because just because your competitors go out of business doesn't mean you as the independent will survive. Because oftentimes your prices are way too high and people say, well, now I don't want to go to the local florist. I'll just order it online. Then everyone's out of business for no other reason that they weren't willing to collaborate. What was the last thing that you saw or heard about any technology, old, new, or repurposed that surprised you or made you hopeful for humanity and honestly hopeful for the future of retail? Well, in all honesty, I've been working with companies globally on a way to have a handheld ability to do translation of language. And... Today, you have these apps you can download on your phone and you say, hello, I'm Britain. Can you tell me where the nearest restaurant is? And then it plays the language that you select. They're really clunky. They don't really allow for conversation. Companies are this close to getting it to where Esther, let's say you speak Bahamian, you speak, so let's say you're from France, you speak French. Ginja, let's say you're German and I'm English. We literally could have this device, you plug it into your phone or the device, you would hear a voice in your ear on the language that you naturally speak. And no matter what you say, it's almost instantaneous, instantaneously translated to English. So we don't just have conversations. We literally actually can develop a relationship. We can communicate. And that to me is one of the reasons why we have so many problems globally. People don't speak one language, and therefore, it's almost impossible. When I go to the Middle East or other countries where I don't speak the language, they still look at me as like, well, who's this guy? Because I'm oftentimes the only white Westerner in many of the places I work in Africa. I never see anyone white. They see me, they know I speak English, but they don't speak English. Most of them speak either an African dialect or French. 
or when I'm in the Middle East. So when I use these translation devices, it's amazing how quickly they see me as a person and not as just an, uh, uh, someone they might be afraid of. I think in 10 years, you will see the ability to have endless communications with immediate translation of languages will do more to change the way people interact and for retail. Because now retailers can communicate on any level with any individual from any country. And that opens up to all these women and all these other individuals saying, I'd like to start a business. But the majority of retail is done in developed countries, the United States, the United Kingdom, and so forth. So they needed ability to communicate and speak in English. This gives it to them. So that's I would I would definitely put that at the top of the list. I think I was I was in tears, you know, being able to have those conversations. Wow. I mean, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. And so it sounds like you're describing a universal translator, which I have always wanted, that and a replicator. But enough about <laughs> I mean, just I need it. <laughs> enough about what I want. What is one piece of technology you'd like to see come to fruition that could change the world outside of this already amazing translation device that you've described? Well, in all honesty, what we really need is an ability so that I as an individual can take this phone and I immediately get a physical that I know what's going on inside me. I know what I'm lacking in terms of nutrients and that if I'm a mother, I can put this on my daughter, my son, I can put it on my husband, and I basically say, oh my God, there's something going on with my daughter. She has pre-stage cancer, or she has leukemia, or she's anemic. And the B, because in so many parts of the world, there's no medical people at all. No one. So if you had an ability to plug in a phone or a small device and you put that in, that again is something where you just change people's lives. So that to me is what I want. If you could ask one question of one of the world's most powerful non-grocery brands, and I'm going to pull Nike out, what would the one thing you'd like to ask Nike to do? You know, I would really ask Nike to stop playing favorites. And what I mean is, Nike is a company like that is like pro wrestling. Nike looks for division. Nike loves promoting a heel. And because of that, Nike misses the fact that there are millions of people who don't want to have the fact that there's maybe someone who's protesting in their life. They need a positive role model in their life. So Nike has access to so many great athletes and they have access to so many owners of sports teams. Why doesn't Nike call them together and say, we need to raise $15 billion because we need to build 280 schools. We need to design an online capability for any kid in any neighborhood in this country to have tutoring with a live person 24-7, 365 days a year. We need a better ability to provide better nutrition at schools. We need an ability to give people the, the, the ability to interact with role models that aren't necessarily athletes, but maybe they're business leaders or whatever. And basically be able to say, we don't need to try and generate controversy, but what we really need to try and do is generate humanity. And I know people in marketing at Nike, and they really told me, because I wrote an article 
about um, Colin Kaepernick. And I said, I believe you're using Colin Kaepernick. I think you're using him just as the WWE, uh, you know, Vince McMahon uses heels in wrestling. And they said, okay, you got us on that one. That's really not too far from the truth. Because controversy breeds marketing. It breeds an audience. And so what I said to them is, why don't you find someone who's just as average can be, but they're taking care of children, or they've adopted, or they have foster kids? And how about you say, we are the greatest nation in the world. We have the best sports equipment, but what we're terrible at is keeping kids out of foster homes. Help us. The more people that listen to this podcast, the better. And I do have an entire retail you know, community that I can't wait to share this with because you have so many great ideas that can be very useful for them to be to survive. Just really thinking about the next year, which is where a lot of these people are. They really are looking at a year. They can't even conceive of a 10-year advance on anything. So, But thank you, Britton, for taking the time to talk to us. I want everyone to reach out to Britton Ladd at BrittonLadd.com. That's B-R-I-T-T-A-I-N-L-A-D-D.com. And you can find him on LinkedIn. Thank you so much to our audience for listening to the Honest Field Guide podcast. I'm Esther. I'm Ginger. I'm Britton. And this is the Honest Field Guide. We'll talk to you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikora. E.